0: Eligible items only, exclusions apply, see ebaymotors.com. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson and you're listening to 83
1: Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm doing great. I'm actually sitting here on my laptop right before this uh looking at uh Welsh history and great Welsh warriors. Now that I found out through Ancestry.com that I indeed um I have Welsh ancestry. I'm so excited.
0: Well, it turns out we both do, I don't know what that means. We got to, we got to figure that out, but what we are going to figure out today is how in the hell Paul White got in the wrestling business. Our subject today is the giant. Of course, he would go on to be the big show, but long before he was the big show, he was just the big kid that somebody in WCW saw something in Eric. Let's start at the beginning. Chat me up. When was the first time you heard about this giant of a man, Paul
1: White? Oh, I'm guessing it was late spring, early summer, to the best of my recall, of 95. Uh, There was a basketball tournament or a charity basketball game of some kind, some event that Hulk Hogan was a part of, and Paul White happened to be there. And (laughs) Hulk called me back and said, you're not going to believe what I found, brother. And told me all about it. And, you know, just because Paul was so excited, I had to naturally, I was interested because he was like over the top thrilled. I mean, he thought he found, you know, he thought he found a train car full of, you know, Spanish gold bullion. I mean, it was crazy.
0: He first, um, sort of broke into the wrestling business in 94. Uh, He tried to join the WWF, but really sort of got the cold shoulder and just got dismissed. Allegedly Pat Patterson didn't even watch the tape that Mike Chioda, the famous referee from WWE who ran into Paul gave Pat because Pat assumed it was the wrestler who would go on to be Kurgan. So he never even bothered watching because he felt like he already knew who it was and he was on his radar. And anyway, he makes his debut at an independent show, December 3rd, 1994. But then eventually Comes across Hulk Hogan and it does feel a little bit like uh, an opportunity, a golden moment. When you first hear from Hulk that he had ran across this gold bullion as you said did he already have the creative that this was the son of Andre? I mean he had clearly made wrestling history with Andre the Giant at Wrestlemania 3. A lot of people believe that that was the passing of the torch if you will. Hulkamania was running wild before that but WrestleMania three certainly took it to another level. When Hulk first mentions this meeting with Paul to you, does he already have an idea what he wants to do?
1: No, he didn't have, he didn't really have an idea. No, he, he did. I recall, you know, he, he referenced, you know, you're not going to believe this guy. I mean, he's like, you know, Andre, the giant big, you know I mean? He was automatically making references to Andre, the giant and comparing and trying to describe Paul, um, but, no, there was no creative disgust on the phone. Uh, that didn't happen till till much later.
0: Of course, in real life, he, uh, like a lot of the other tall guys in wrestling, whether it's Kevin Nash, whoever, was a basketball player. Uh, but Paul did have a condition that um, made him a giant. I mean, I, I feel like this is it probably glossed over a lot, but giantism uh, is, is the, the common term for his situation and he had to have a, uh, a surgery to sort of slow down the process, a surgery that maybe could have prolonged Andre's life. But ultimately he becomes a mountain of a man. You know, we all know over seven feet tall and, uh, quite the athlete to say the least. So when Hogan sees him, he sees money in him and gets him down to the power plant. And he spends a lot of time with Terry Taylor. So chat me up. How do you guys get him down to the performance center before it was called the performance center, the real performance center, the power plant, which I feel like just sort of get swept under the rug and Eric Bischoff innovation, if you will. Uh, How does he come to be a part of the uh, power plant?
1: You know, we, I think we talked over the phone. Uh, He was interested in coming in. We were obviously interested in him, especially with, you know, the support that he had from Hulk. Um, And we, we flew him down. Uh, he came down to the power plant. Clearly, he needed a lot of work. He was, he was green. There, that was obvious. But everybody was really excited to work with him. And I think the first thing that I remember specifically, I mean, I remember the time in general, certainly, anytime a guy that's over seven foot tall, you know, I think he probably weighed, I think he was under 400 when he came in. You know, he still, I mean, Paul, you look at him now, and, he, you know, he's older. And like all of us who get older, our body shape changes and, and all of that. You know, in in addition to the fact that, you know, Paul had a had a condition, which I'm sure still affects him to some degree to this day. But when he first came in in 95, Paul had your traditional athletic kind of V-shaped body. If you saw him, you know, from behind, his shoulders were much, you know, broader than his hips and he wasn't carrying a lot of weight around his midsection. He was just he was like an average build guy, but really fucking big. I mean, it it you know you look at guys like well certainly you can look at Andre the Giant and it's really hard to compare the two because Andre, as you pointed out, had a medical condition and I, I can't recall the details of it. I think it was a thyroid type of a condition um, where you just you wouldn't stop growing. And as you pointed out, Paul had the same thing, but he had surgery to remove that, and I believe it's a tumor. But he had surgery to correct the the, the condition, whatever whatever the medical terminology is. And Paul was able to maintain a very athletic, you know, normal-looking physique, although, like I said, just really big. And the things that – and this is what I remember hearing, and I don't know if it was Terry Taylor or somebody else, it might have been Jody Hamilton, called me in the office because the power plant was probably a, you know, 30, 20, 30-minute 30 ride from, from CNN Center. So when I got the call, I like, you got to get down here, you got to see this guy, you know, in the ring – and I went down, and they said, "Okay, Paul, go ahead. Let's see what you could do." And the first thing he did is got down on, a, on his on the back on a mat on his back and did a kip up, a fucking kip up. That's a move that about 125 pound gymnast can pull off all day long, or maybe a 16 year old cheerleader, you know. But you don't see too many 350, 400 pound guys that are seven foot tall do a perfect kip up. It blew my mind just how athletic Paul was and probably still is to this day, to a degree. Not as athletic as he was back then, but it was shocking the the things that he was capable of doing. Like I said, he had the ability to do things that a hundred and eighty or two hundred and twenty pound guy can do but he was so massive and i think that was one of the bigger challenges and it would be interesting maybe in a in a bonus show if we could ever get Terry Taylor or somebody that really worked with him closely to talk about because i certainly wasn't that guy but it would be really interesting to hear how they had to get paul to understand that rather than doing average size guys moves Typical, traditional wrestling moves that he had probably been taught early on in whatever kind of preliminary level training that he had. He had to learn how to become a giant. And that was one of the bigger issues with Paul is he could do so much athletically. And he wanted to. He wanted to prove that he could do more than just fee-fi-fo-fum, you know, I'm the big man <laughs> kind of move. You know, that's what you, you really needed out of Paul. But he, he had the desire to do so much more
0: thing you were talking about earlier is the pituitary gland. You have a tumor on there that secretes too much growth hormone, and that is what we commonly refer to as gigantism. You have the tumor removed, it stops secreting all the growth hormone, it slows it down. But that explains why, you know, he was a massive, massive man. And he's in training here for about six months before you guys have him debut at Slam Bree nineteen ninety five. Uh, but the first time we heard about him as a dirt sheet reader, uh, if that's what we want to call the wrestling observer is the March 6th edition of the year, uh, 1995, where Dave would write WCW is very interested in bringing in Paul white, 72 440, in some sort of gimmick role. But what exactly hasn't been decided? Of course, he actually pops up at Slam slamboree at the beginning of the match. We see a brief glimpse of Paul white, the giant who is, of course, everybody imagines, going to be the challenger for Hulk Hogan in either Halloween havoc or Starcade. Uh, that match, by the way, was Hogan and Savage on one side, Vader and Flair on the other. And Meltzer was sort of freestyle that they may bill him as being seven foot six, but he is legitimately over seven feet tall, probably seven-1. And people are referencing him as, you know, one of the largest athletes in the history of professional wrestling. So when you know that you've got that type of talent in the power plant, you probably want to find a way to get that guy on TV as fast
1: as possible, but not too soon where it looks dumb, right? Well, yes, not look dumb, meaning, you know, from a creative perspective, you don't want it to look dumb and dumb would be forced or throwing him out into a situation that he's not ready for right? Uh, physically or psychologically or emotionally, you know, getting out there in front of, you know, whether it's a 1,000 or 1,500 people or 15,000 people is nerve-wracking to anybody that's new at it. You know, I don't care who you are. Um, I've worked with the Kevin Greens of the world and the Dennis Rodmans of the world and, you know, great athletes at the at the peak of their careers. And they're used to going out and playing on a team and doing what they do. But you put those same people out in a wrestling ring with a pair of tights on. In, a, in an environment that they're not familiar with in a sport or, or performance that they're not a hundred percent comfortable in. And all of a sudden you see the little kid come out of them. You know, they get really nervous about that. It's completely different. And I think throwing anybody out there, whether it's Paul white or anybody, you know, we talked about Horace before Horace was really ready or David flair in the past. There's a lot of examples of, people that, you know, we in WCW threw out into the crowd before they were ready, and they pay the price for it. It's great, you know, they get a break, everybody's excited, wow, I'm on TV, you know, call my friends, call my family. But if you go out there and shit the bed, you know, once the audience decides they don't like you because you are not ready, or you're being forced down the audience's throat prematurely, um, once they make up their minds about you, it's really hard to, get, get, to undo that. Um, once it's done, it's hard to undone it. If, if you know what I mean. So, yeah, we that's the creative side of it. And the other part of it is, and it, it kind of goes hand in hand, I guess, he's um, got to be capable of actually executing something that makes sense, storyline-wise. And, and Paul wasn't. He was greener than green at that point. Talk to me a
0: little bit about debuting him in the crowd, because it does feel like we're just seeing glimpses of him in the crowd, not just at this pay-per-view, but then he's going to, be in the crowd for some like stare downs with Kamala during a Saturday night taping, but we're just sort of doing, you know, sightings of him and the great American bash and slamboree. And why was this the right way to just introduce him to the audience, but not really fire him into something at this point? Are you still hoping that we're getting some finishing touches on, you know, his work and performance?
1: Well, there's, there's really, there's three ways, you know, there's the right way. There's the wrong way, and then there's the only way. You know, there was no right way to introduce him because he wasn't capable. Capable. We did want to get him on TV. You're right about that. Because of his size, because he was so unique, the thought process, good or bad, right or wrong, the thought process is let's establish him. Let's let the audience know he's alive. Let's put him out in the crowd so we can see how big he is, but let's... Let's build up a mystique. You know, mystique is a very um, under-discussed quality within you know sports entertainment, professional wrestling. It's part of the charisma. It's something that makes people special, and especially when you got a guy that this that is as big as Paul was or is, you've got to create a mystique and and get people talking about him. So we we couldn't introduce him the right way, which would be in in a really strong, great wrestling angle, because he wasn't ready for that. Uh, we didn't want to do it the wrong way, which would have been doing exactly the opposite of you know, doing it the right way, which would be let's just throw him out there and see what happens. So the only way to establish him was to put him out in the crowd, let the audience see how big he was, get people talking about it, create some anticipation, another under-discussed element in, in great storytelling and professional wrestling. Anticipation is sometimes as valuable as anything else uh, if it's done well. I don't think this was done well. I'm not trying to suggest it was. I think it probably could have been done much better had, had, had I had that same opportunity. Now I could probably think of ways um, to make it much more exciting and probably get more out of it. But that was the logic behind it at that time.
0: The first time we really see interaction with him is at the bash at the beach in 1995. You guys are doing some sort of gimmick where you're giving away a motorcycle and he shows up and has a shirt on that looks like the old Andre the Giant t shirt that a lot of fans will remember. And he takes it off and throws it at Hogan, who starts acting stunned, saying this was Andre's shirt. What do you remember about this first interaction and doing the shirt piece of business, referencing Andre?
1: You know, I don't remember the scene specifically. Um, I know that it happened, but I can't tell you what I was thinking when I saw it or, you know, watching it being produced or anything like that because I I just don't recall it. Um, I know, you know, prior to that scene being filmed or being laid out, um, we had obviously had much more conversation about the relationship between Paul and Andre and how we were going to – characterize paul you know what his backdrop was going to be or background was going to be and hulk was you know determined to try to leverage the the andre the giant you know parallels and you know he was he was pretty adamant about you know paul being the son of of andre and all that kind of stuff I, i i wasn't comfortable with it Um, I, you know, I wasn't experienced enough at that time, or I didn't have enough confidence in myself at that time to kind of make too much noise. Again, I wasn't booking at that time. Kevin Sullivan was, and, and Kevin Sullivan to his credit was doing the best he could do. You know, if, if Kevin Sullivan or Terry Taylor or Kevin Sullivan, myself and Terry Taylor were all sitting around in a room and Hulk Hogan came in who found Paul discovered him convinced him to come into wcw and then you know in his mind saw an angle that he thought could work you know given hulk's experience compared to mine certainly or even kevin's or maybe mine and kevin's and terry taylor's combined probably would still go with hulk and the guy made more money and had more success than than any of us did and i i You know, I, I wasn't comfortable with it, but we let it go. You know, we, we decided to ride with it and, uh, it, you know, it was what it was, but I wasn't really digging it. It didn't feel fresh to me.
0: Well, I'm sure you were probably digging the way the dungeon of doom skit goes down July 22nd. This is a famous skit where Hulk Hogan visits the physical dungeon of doom. He's magically beamed into the dungeon. And then says, where is this? Where am I? And then he gets into an argument with Kevin Sullivan. And then the giant comes through the wall, dressed up like Andre, sporting a new Afro, and even has the old Andre style singlet on. And he gives Hogan the big choke and Hogan goes right out. Yep. Dungeon of doom. Took us a while to get here,
1: Eric, but we finally made it. Well, what do you do? you bring up Dungeon of Doom almost every week. What do you mean it's taken a while to get here? We round this Dungeon of Doom corner every time we do a show and you park the car right out in front of this Dungeon of Doom catastrophe and ask me how I feel about it. It was horrible, bro. It was just again, I can't I can't say enough how much I just <laughs> fucking hate it. I just hated it. I hated it.
0: Uh, it's Meltzer just, would report the following week, Hulk Hogan, during a horrible interview over the weekend, tried to strongly hint that Paul white was Andre, the Giant's son talking about how he remembered him at the silver dome, watching the match. And there has even been talk of billing him as Andre, the giant junior. Do You remember ever discussing Andre, the giant junior as a possible name?
1: No, I think no. I don't think we were going to call him Andre the Giant Jr. I think it was, you know, we did obviously discuss, as I said moments ago, you know connecting him to Andre the Giant and having him be Andre the Giant's son illegitimate or otherwise there was a lot of goofy ideas being bounced around at the time but at no time was there any consideration from billing him for billing him as Andre the Giant Jr I don't think Hulk would have won. you know Hulk had a lot of respect still does to this day when you when you talk to him about Andre the Giant he'll he'll start talking and then within about 3 or 4 minutes inevitably he'll start tearing up I don't think he would have gone quite that far, um, in, in trying to name him Andre, the giant junior, but we did, we did definitely want to draw the connection between him and Andre That, that that's a fact.
0: So let's talk a little bit about clash of the champions, because the next time we see, uh, the giant he's at the clash and Hogan is back into the dungeon of doom and this time the giant rips off his cross off his neck, of course he has across gold chain that a lot of people remember andre tore off in 1987 and then the giant starts choking him while shark zodiac and sullivan all attack hogan and uh, eventually uh, they drag hogan out and pull vader away and they do a stare down with the giant this is uh looking and feeling very, very familiar. The whole tearing off of the cross. That was a big moment in the build for WrestleMania three. You guys are trying to leverage that with his gear and the necklace and all those little hints. Uh, but here's a fun thing. I've always wanted to ask about this. I mean, you're right in the middle of introducing this character, but he's not a part of the first nitro was, well, one of the ideas maybe supposed to be a Vader giant match on the first Nitro and then all the Vader stuff happens and that doesn't happen as a result.
1: I don't I don't think so. That doesn't ring a bell. You know, and I I can't tell you why, you know, we're jumping around a little bit. I can't tell you why we didn't use Paul on Nitro uh, other than, you know, there just wasn't an angle for him at that time or there wasn't a story that was hot enough at that time it would be my guess. That's all it is, but I don't think it had anything to do with look, you, We didn't, you know, we didn't plan far enough ahead with a lot of our underneath stories. And Paul would have been an underneath story at that point. Right. Um, We didn't plan three months out, four months out uh, with some of our what I would call C and D stories because you do. And you know, w- w- when you lay out, at least when I do l- later on in, in my career, if I was going to write a wrestling show now or a program that was going to last, you know, three or four months, let, let me put it this way. When spike television came to TNA and said, okay, from now on, we want to see, um, a minimum of a three month story arc for all of your shows. All of your characters and all of your shows. And nobody in TNA knew how to do that. We sat down, we, meaning myself and uh, my partner at the time, Jason Hervey, was with a lot of, you know, Matt and a couple of the people that worked in creative and literally laid out a, an entire three-month story arc for A, B, C, and D stories. And then you had stories that were underneath that, that were, you know, part of the show but didn't necessarily have an arc or a payoff, so to speak. Um, but even back in 95, because it was always a goal of mine to try to figure out th- the magic formula that would kind of give you a roadmap or a template that even though you knew you might have to take a left and go around a construction site or maybe you'd take a right and go you know, visit a, a, a site along the way on your destination, for the most part, you had a pretty good general direction of where you were going and how you wanted to get there with at least your top two or three stories. So, you know, Paul was not in that top two or three stories back in 1995. And I think that was probably the reason it didn't have anything to do with Vader.
0: Looking for a great mother's day or father's day gift idea. I was, and I found it at paint your life with paint your life. You'll get a hand painted portrait created to fit almost any budget. And it's a great gift idea for your mother, your father, or both. You say, Paint Your Life transforms your photos into a -a one-of-a-kind beautiful hand-painted portrait created by professional artists. You upload anything you can imagine. You can even combine photos. You'll pick the artist, the medium, you can even customize the frame, and you can receive your painting in as little as two weeks. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at PaintYourLife.com, and there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money's refunded, guaranteed. And right now is a limited time offer. Get 20% off your painting. That's right. 20% off and free shipping to get this special offer. Just text the word weeks to 87204. That's weeks to 87204. Text weeks to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. The, uh, first nitro that's head to head with raw, which is September 11th, we would see the giant come out and chokeslam savage a few times. Uh, and this is around the same time that an ECW, a wrestler named nine one one is really getting over the chokeslam. Do you remember who came up with the chokeslam concept for the giant? Because it would certainly be a huge part of his character moving forward.
1: It would have had to have either been Terry Taylor or Kevin Sullivan would be my guess. I mean, they were the ones that were working with Paul and, and developing his character and working with him down at the power plant. Um, that is just a guess, but I I would probably, if I had to bet real money on it, uh, anything more than a tank of gas, I'd probably put it on Terry Taylor.
0: So giant has not really worked a match. He's just doing run-ins and choke slamming guys like the American males and the nasty boys. It's apparent though, that he's a part of the dungeon of doom and during the month of October, it becomes clear, okay, he is Hogan's opponent for Halloween Havoc for the world title. So he's really going to make his debut match uh, as far as a traditional match, not just a run-in or a backstage pre-taped skit or something like that for the world title. But somewhere along the way in this quest to dethrone Hulk Hogan, the Dungeon of Doom up the ante. And now we're going to have a sumo monster truck battle on top of the
1: Joe Lewis arena. I'm sure you want to take credit for this one. I don't want to, but I have to, <laughs> I mean, there's nowhere else I can pin it on. Um, there was a reason behind it. <laughs> the, the reasoning behind it was that monster trucks was a really big, uh, business right. still is by the way. Um, you know, owned by Feld entertainment probably produce, I don't know, a couple hundred events around the country, in fact, internationally to this day, and generate a ton of money. Little known fact, um, Mattel, uh, up until recently, because they no longer a part of Monster Trucks, or Monster Jam, as it were, or as it was, um, was selling 125,000 die-cast Monster Trucks at Walmart. A month. Oh, my. So the logic was let's do a partnership with Monster Trucks so that we can take some of the WCW characters. And we started off with the Hulk Hogan truck and we started off with Paul's truck. And let's create these trucks that are extension of our wrestling characters so that those trucks can then tour on the Monster Truck circuit and we can merchandise them. So as goofy as the fucking idea was from a wrestling point of view, and it was, I will admit that, the reasoning behind it is a little bit like Sturgis. It may not have been the smartest idea from a wrestling fan's point of view, but from a business point of view, at the very least, there was a logic behind it. And that was, that was it. And that, was, that was the reason why we did it.
0: So this is from Meltzer's write-up, and we're going to cover Halloween Havoc in long form. Mark your calendars, boys and girls. October 29th. Um, but Meltzer says the match was actually a compilation of about a five minute live match and several hours worth of taping. The previous night, they had two monster truck drivers doing the driving and Hogan, and giant inside the truck, faking like they were driving. If you notice all the, in the truck shots were identical and spliced in badly, which gave it a planet nine. Look, the dungeon of doom truck looked cool. Even Hogan's truck looked like it was on steroids. After the match, Hogan and the Giant argued and shoved and punched, and eventually the Giant lost his balance on a ledge that was supposed to be overhanging Lake Michigan, although there actually is no part of the roof of Kobo that overhangs the lake. It's actually a parking lot totally surrounding the building, and then he plunged to his death, or so we were led to believe. Angles like this are the reason pro wrestling in this country is in the condition it is in. Chat me up. His first big show, his first big match, a world title bout, in fact, but before he gets a chance to get in the ring, he's dead.
1: (laughs) Oh God. That was pretty bad. Wasn't it?
0: Yes. It was very bad.
1: It was bad. You know, it was bad. I can't. I'm trying to figure out a way to respond that would kind of put it in the best possible light. You know, I'm I'm thinking to myself, well, it was Halloween havoc and it's a themed, you know, Halloween event. And he comes back to life and, you know, eh, it's kind of cool. You know, it's kind of thematic. It's Halloween. People come back from the dead all the time in Halloween. I mean, we watch the walking dead. People suspend their disbelief uh, enough in that in order to make it one of the most watched shows in the world right now. Now, I'm trying to think of all these different ways I can try to at least frame it in a somewhat positive light, but I, I, I can't do it. I just can't. It was pretty, it was pretty bad.
0: Of course the match actually happens because the giant comes back to life, which is great news. Um, they go 16 <laughs> minutes.
1: And- <laughs> which is great news. He <laughs> sounded so enthused. <laughs>
0: Uh, they got 16 minutes and 57 seconds. And they say that Hogan is going to keep the title because he's winning by DQ. Why is he winning by DQ? Well, Ron Reese comes down wrapped in toilet paper and they refer to him as the Yeti and, uh, Meltzer would write Yeti isn't supposed to be a mummy, but is supposed to be an abominable snowman from the Himalayas. So they got (laughs) half right. Luger then put Hogan in the torture rack. Hogan and Savage were left laying as the dungeon of doom left the ring. It started as a great angle, but turned into something campy in the worst way. When the guy wrapped up in toilet paper showed up and tried to have sex with Hulk
1: Hogan. Giant left with the belt. Two stars. Oh my God. You know, I've never really been a fan of weed I've never smoked weed. I mean, I have. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not lying about that. I have it, have smoked it, but it's just never been my kind of buzz. I'm, I'm just more of a beer buzz kind of guy. But I'm, I'm wishing back when this was being laid out and produced, I would have been sharing whatever weed those guys were smoking when they came up with this. Because then it might have at least been entertaining and fun to watch. As it is, listening to you describe it and visualizing it and recalling it in my mind as it was happening, the Yeti thing was just so fucking horrible. Horrible. And if anything drove me to, to wanting to introduce more reality into the wrestling product starting in 96, it might have been this. It might have been the Dungeon of Doom that actually helped me manifest the idea for NWO and more reality-based wrestling. Cause this shit was horrible. It was horrible.
0: Yeah. Meltzer would write.
1: Oh, do you have to, yeah. do we have to hear what Meltzer had to say about this dreck for my Yiddish friends? Oh, go for it. Let's hear what Meltzer had to say. Yeti, who was
0: a good three or four inches taller than our original giant combined for a double bear hug on hogan at least that's what i hope it was because it looked more like a kinky sandwich (laughs) this is fucking it's amazing that when you really think about it isn't it amazing that paul white went on to have the hall of fame career that he's had when this is how he debuts like not a lot of guys would be able to sustain this i guess it's part of the benefits of being seven foot tall
1: well, it is, and and this was early in Paul's career, and, and obviously Ron Reese didn't have a Hall of Fame career after this clusterfuck. But you know, and we'll we'll talk about Paul White in his career. You know, I mean, it, it probably as we get closer to the end of this, when we're talking about him leaving WCW and making the big choice to go to WWE because Vince McMahon promised him he was going to make him the next Andre the Giant, make him the next star, and put him up on a pedestal and gave him a 10 year contract and all that kind of stuff. But you know, Paul's had a great career. Paul's had great longevity and I like Paul white. I have a lot of respect for Paul, but what's your favorite Paul white match, big show match, you know? I mean, he's been there and he's certainly had longevity, but you know, I think he's, when you think of WWE and its top stars, I don't think Paul white comes to mind.
0: Wow. Bischoff coming in hot. We'll circle back. Let's talk a little bit about the next day after Halloween havoc. They're on nitro, of course. And Jimmy Hart is stating that his man, the giant is the world champion. And the giant certainly has the belt snapped around his waist. But Nick Lambros is saying that the contract is not going to allow For the giant to be the world champion. And instead they're going to hold the title up and crown a winner at the next super battle Royal pay-per-view world war three. before we actually get there, believe it or not, the giant makes his way to Japan and comes out to the ring using Andre's music or the music that Andre used in Japan. He finds himself teaming with Arn Anderson to take on Hashimoto and Yasuda he does a couple of shots there and then he's back in time for nitro. And then of course the world war three, pay-per-view Meltzer would report Hogan threw a tantrum about a report that the giant was going to win the battle Royal and how they were wrong, which pretty well tipped everyone off that the giant wasn't going to win. I think what they're referencing here is the, the famous skit where we see Hulk Hogan with the observer saying, observe this on pay-per-view. I don't know when we'll talk about that. How did he get the green light to do so?
1: Mm, I would have heard about it. I would have, I would have greenlit that. I was a big fan, a big fan of the dirt sheets, So, uh, wouldn't have bothered me at all.
0: The next thing that we, we see is, is this continuation of the Hulk Hogan giant feud, there's lots of different iterations. You know, we see him get quick wins over enhancement talent, but they're using him on top quite a bit with Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage, and then even tag combinations like the clash of the champions from Vegas was Hogan and savage against Flair and the giant. I mean, the guy is at the top of the card right away after he debuts. What are the early reports from Hulk Hogan after, you know, he's really working some of his very first matches with the biggest name in the history of the sport after the match, what are Hogan and flair and savage, what are they saying about this young upstart Paul white?
1: They were all very supportive of him. You know, everybody, everybody without question was um, amazed with his athletic ability and how fast he was picking things up in the ring, you know, and Here's the and we'll talk about this more, you know, referencing my earlier comments about not being one of WWE's biggest stars. And that's I know it sounds like a knock on Paul and it sounds like I'm coming in hot, as you say, but here's here's the challenge that we had, and one of the reasons why, and I know I'm probably skipping forward a little bit, but one of the reasons why it didn't break my heart to see Paul go. And in and, and Even in these early matches, as you say, you know, he's in the ring with some of the the top guys in the business. Well, that's because we needed to camouflage. We needed to not only camouflage the fact that he was somewhat inexperienced or very inexperienced, as the case may be, but also what do you do with a guy that's over 7 foot tall and 400 pounds? How do you – as a character, you know, if you're going to put him out there every week or on a regular basis at least – what do you do with that character? You know, is the character a babyface? Well, if the character is a babyface, you've got to be able to get sympathy on them. Otherwise, the formula doesn't work. I know that's old-fashioned, and people don't really think about that anymore in today's world. I I still think it's incredibly valuable. But l- let's just assume for the moment that you know we're back in 1995 where we're discussing this, and that at that time, your your characters. Pretty much, if it was going to make any sense to the viewer or you had any chance of them connecting to a storyline or a character, in ideal situations, and not that every one of our situations were ideal, Dungeon of Doom, but you at least had characters that represented heels and baby faces. Well, if you wanted Paul White to be a baby face, the only way that works is if you get sympathy on him. You almost get him to the point where it looks like he's going to get beaten and he comes out of it and eventually survives and prevails. How do you get heat on a uh, – how do you get sympathy on a on a 7-foot, 4-inch, 400-pound guy and make it look believable? Conversely, if you want him to be an effective heel, he's going to lie, steal, and cheat. Eddie Guerrero. Well, how do you uh, – uh, how and why does a guy that's 7-foot, 4 400-pounds have to lie, steal, and cheat? It's just hard, and and I think that's probably one of the reasons why, even though you know Paul has had this stellar career, or a long long lived career, I should say, in WWE, he's not, you know he hasn't reached that kind of breakout you know Undertaker type status or Stone Cold status or John Cena status uh, or Triple H status or Batista status or Ric Flair status, because it's just too hard to put him in a role that would build over a long enough period of time and result in a crescendo or a climax at the end of a story that would be that classic match because it's really hard to, for him to be a baby face that you can get sympathy on or a heel that you believe that you actually believe is a heel. And I think when now going back to what you're talking about here in, in 1995, everybody in the ring, Hulk, Ric Flair, you know Randy Savage they were all extremely supportive of Paul but we still had that we had that problem what do you do with that character that 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 will make people really believe in it
0: one of the things that uh i've wanted to talk about since we sort of announced that we were going to do this is the relationship he has with Hulk Hogan because we would read things in the observer like this the biggest things revealed were Babyface turns to the Giant and Zodiac, largely due to them being friends of Hulk Hogan's. Uh this comes out, by the way, uh, for the uh February twelfth Observer, which is addressing the tapings that are gonna air in April of nineteen ninety-six. Giant has moved to Florida near Hogan, and the two have become friends as Hogan is grooming the guy to be the next Andre, and of course Ed Leslie has been Hogan's running buddy since the beginning of time. Uh what do you remember? about Hogan trying to get close to the giant or the giant rather trying to get close to Hogan. And by the way, you couldn't have a better mentor when you're talking about the top guy in the business. So I totally get why Paul is down to do this, but the relationship seems to become almost of a a mentor type situation. If you believe
1: what we read in the newsletters, I think what you read was mostly true. Um, keep in mind Paul was very young when he came to WCW Paul had lost his father not long before coming to WCW and that hit him very hard Paul's a very emotional guy to this I mean he's a very you talk about a gentle giant you know as big as Paul is in intimidating if you don't know him as he can be when he walks into a room you know when you talk to him he, he's just like anybody else he's He's no different than any five foot eight, 160-pound person. He's just in this massive body. And he's a very emotional, very sensitive guy. And given that he was very emotional and very sensitive, and he had just lost his father, he was coming into a world that he knew nothing about, really. And here he he's got Hulk Hogan, who, by the way, got him in the door, mentored him all the way into WC. WCW got him a contract, got him a start. Of course, Paul gravitated towards Hulk. Who wouldn't? And I think it was more Paul. Uh, it wasn't more Paul or more Hulk. It was it was mutual. You know, Paul, I think, really felt safe and trusted Hulk and believed that Hulk was going to do everything in his power, and 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 rightfully so, because Hulk was equally as enthusiastic about Paul White as Paul White was enthusiastic about being mentored by hulk hogan and there was nothing artificial nobody was using each other there was no nefarious you know evil plan you know lurking in the in the background so that hulk could somehow you know come out on top as dave Meltzer would kind of probably you know suggest in anything that he would write um that there was some manipulative underpinnings in everything there wasn't there was just a very young guy who was insecure very insecure paul was um, he was as insecure as any other you know, young 22, 24-year-old kid that would be breaking into a world he didn't know and now is being surrounded by Ric Flair's and Hulk Hogan's and Randy Savage's and seeing himself on TV every week. Um, so it was a natural relationship. And, Paul, yeah, Paul did move to Tampa. Um, Florida's not a bad place to live. It beats the fuck out of Chicago in January. I know that for certain. Uh, so it was it was a natural kind of evolution of their relationship.
0: Let's talk a little bit about super brawl six, because this is really, uh, another main event with him and Hogan on top this time in a cage match. Uh, they're going to go 15 minutes and four seconds, which is a really long time to be a giant this early in your career. Uh, one star is what we get, but we also see the Loch Ness monster show up. Uh, Hogan on top in a cage with a giant. It feels like, uh, everything wrestling was right.
1: Yep, yeah, it's definitely, we talked about it last week, you know, um, with regard to Warrior and trying to recapture magic. And I understand it. You know, people still do it to this day. There are things I see to this day. Um, you know, Triple H and Undertaker, for example, that just happened recently. You know, people will still go back and try to recapture magic. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Uh, this was back in 1995. Stylistically, tonally, you know, creatively speaking, the way that at that time, Kevin, for the most part, Sullivan, along with other people, uh, influenced heavily by, I'm sure, Hulk Hogan and others, um, was writing, wrestling, and trying to recapture, you know, the magic that everybody experienced 10 years previously and missed it by a mile. You know, sometimes you can't go back. Or you try to go back and maybe you could go back, but if you execute so, so poorly as was done here, you know, in your earlier description of the match in Detroit with the Yeti or Yeti or whatever the fuck he was called. You know, when you when you execute so poorly or you've got such a, a bad creative frame like Dungeon of Doom, that was just so goofy to begin with, you know, even if it's possible to go back and recapture certain magic, you, you, you start out in a hole because the audience just isn't digging what you're doing.
0: Let's talk about, um, the Loch Ness monster. You put the giant in there with the Loch Ness monster in Tupelo, Mississippi on the uncensored pay-per-view. They go two minutes and 34 seconds. Meltzer would write giant took one great bump, which wasn't supposed to be, which supposedly wasn't planned. Easy for me to say. Loch Ness is the worst, but I think this is the last we'll see of him. Negative one star. Who thought it was a good idea to put the Loch Ness on pay-per-view against the giant?
1: Now I hate to bury my good friend, (laughs) Kevin Sullivan, but Kevin was, Kevin was booking. I let it happen. It's on me. Not saying I'm, I'm, I'm guilt-free in this scenario, but I will say it was not my idea.
0: He turned babyface briefly here, but it doesn't last long, like a week. He's supposed to team with Sting against Harlem Heat. Surprise, the Giant turns on Sting. Um, we've also got an opportunity to build towards a title match here. Hogan's going to take a, a leave of absence to work on a movie. So April 29th sets up Giant and Ric Flair for the world title, and the Giant becomes the first rookie to win the world title. Uh, I guess we should remind everybody he's like 24 years old here uh, when he becomes the world champion. Uh, why put the belt on the giant so soon? Were you for it, against it? What was the payoff?
1: Yeah, I uh, I wasn't for it or against it. I went along with it. I think the idea was, look, we've got magic here in this guy. Everybody, including Ric Flair. Um, believed in the giant. I, I think Rick would have been one of the first to tell all of us, you know, he's not ready yet. But when you're seven foot some odd inches tall and you're 400 pounds, or by this time probably 450 because he was growing now all of a sudden, um, there's, a, there's a lot in that character that makes up for lack of experience. If, if, if you do it right. Um, Again, I'll go back to what I talked about earlier, finding the way to do it right, given the fact that you can't get heat on him, you can't get sympathy on him, and you can't get real heel heat on him because he doesn't need to lie and cheat and steal. It makes it very difficult. But I think the idea was, look, this guy could be a star. There's been nobody in this business since Andre the Giant that's this big, that's this athletic. Let's do whatever we can to try to see if we can get him over the hump. That's for the most part, what I recall the conversations being not in detail, but that was the, that was the logic behind it.
0: Let's get to Slambery, May 19th from Baton Rouge, the giant pinned sting here to retain the world title, like a 10 minutes and 41 seconds. Meltzer was pretty high on it. He gave it three and a quarter stars. He would even comment a good storyline and better action than you'd have any right to expect given giants level of experience. And its sting has never been known to carry people well. And it is sort of interesting to think about this pay-per-view here because I always assume that the giant was around a long time before the NWO came in. It feels like there were a lot of shows, but realistically you go back and you say, okay, it's October of 95 is when the havoc disaster happens. And you fast forward to slamboree in may the following year. This is the last pay-per-view WCW is going to have before Scott Hall shows up and turns wrestling on its ear. And on that show, May 27th, just a handful of days after slamboree where Scott Hall would debut the giant pins shark. And he would continue to run through guys like ice train and Scott Norton, uh, on the way to great American bash where he would retain over Lex Luger, getting a, a star and a quarter. And he sort of flounders a little bit here in 96, even though he's the champ, it's no longer the hot angle. Everybody's talking about what they're talking about is bash at the beach and Hulk Hogan becoming a bad guy. And on that card, we would see the giant team with Kevin Sullivan to get a win over Arn Anderson and Chris Benoit. At this point, you know, you're going to turn wrestling on its ear. You're going to make Hulk Hogan a bad guy. Was there any sort of preliminary discussion of how the giant may figure into that since he was someone that Hogan had sort of taken under his wing? It feels like there may have been some conversation before the turn.
1: True. No, that's not true. You know, we, we were, we were doing okay prior to July of, of 96. I mean, we weren't, We weren't anywhere near where we wanted to be. But even by by that time, we were well ahead of projections business-wise. You know, internally, Turner was was happy with our progress at that point. There was a lot of things that were going pretty well. And, you know, you started this off, you know, by saying you knew you were going to turn wrestling on its ear, you know, with the Hogan turn. We really didn't. I mean, it's easy to say that now looking back and, you know, with after the fact, as I often say with 2020 hindsight and and make ourselves sound like we were really smart and we had, you know, we, we were smart enough to know that when Hogan turned and joined the NWO, the entire world was going to shift. And 20 some odd years later, the NWO shirts would still be selling out in major arenas around the world, which, by the way, I just read happened in Australia last week. Um, but we didn't know that. We, we didn't know that we knew that. Here's what we knew in in July of 1996 in the show that you're talking about. I knew, I'll I'll talk about what I knew for sure. I knew for sure that we were going to try something that was different, that we were going to try to create a more believability in the product. I knew that Hulk Hogan was extremely excited, so excited, by the way, that weeks before uh, he turned in, or weeks before I should say, yeah, weeks before he turned in July, after seeing Scott Hall and Kevin Nash, so in that period of time between the time that Scott Hall first showed up on May 27th, 1996, and July of 1996 when Hulk actually turned, in between those two dates, Hulk called me and wanted to know who the third man was going to be because he wanted it to be him. That, that's what we knew going into July. But going into May 27th, I didn't know. I didn't know if it was going to work. I, I was excited about it. I knew I was I knew what wasn't working. And I don't mean to, you know, keep picking on any one person or group of people, but the goofy animated, let's go back to the 80s Loch Ness Monster Yeti shit wasn't working for me. And I, I was excited about doing something different. But once we started doing it to answer your question specifically, did I go, ooh, how is this going to affect Paul? Or what do we do with Paul White? I I did not. Maybe I should have, by the way. You know, looking back on it now, I probably should have been much more disciplined in, in my overall approach to what we were doing. But the fact of the matter is that I was really focused and excited on the move I was about to make with Scott Hall and Kevin Nash. Weeks later, Hulk Hogan would be calling me and, and wanting wanting to be the third man, and that was my focus. My focus wasn't on how does this affect Lex Luger, how does it affect Sting, how does it affect... No, it, well, take that out. It, it would have affected Sting because he was going to be my third man at one point. But I didn't look back at the rest of the roster and wonder how that was all going to affect them, including Paul White.
0: So you guys immediately... Um figure out hey we've got to get the belt on hulk hogan we need a, a cool main event for our Sturgis event and we've talked about this one before it's hog wild it's going to be outdoors and hulk hogan is going to challenge for the world title in august they're going to go 14 minutes 55 seconds not the best match in the world pretty campy uh, it gets a negative star and a half in the observer uh, at this point now that you've got the belt off of the giant Do you remember there being any discussions about what if he joined the NWO or if not, what were the plans for the giant post dropping the bill?
1: There were no real plans. There was no, there was no hard and fast plan. I think it was okay. Let's go back to the drawing board. Let's see where this angle is going. Let's see what people are reacting to and let's figure out a way to work him back into the program we had to take a little bit of a break from him. You don't go immediately from, well, let's put it this way. I didn't want to go immediately from dropping the belt to putting more focus on him, uh, in the NWO, not immediately. And the discussions about bringing him into the NWO didn't happen until sometime afterwards, maybe a couple of weeks or a month or two.
0: So that actually happens hog wild on August 10th, 1996. He joins the NWO on September 2nd um it seemingly comes out of nowhere there's a brawl between the nwo and wcw and the giant comes running down and you think he's going to make the save for the wcw side but instead he turns and gets a giant face pop when he joins the nwo and destroys everyone in sight uh, meltzer would write after the original plan to debut davy boy smith as the new member of the new world order fell through WCW whoa, 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 instead whoa, 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 turned whoa, 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 Giant into whoa, whoa. a new no, member. No,
1: no, 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 no! You can't just, you can't just steamroll over that little tidbit. So who? He said that Davy Boy Smith was going to be one of the one of the members of the NWO. Is that what he reported?
0: The turn itself was another of those last minute plans when the original plan of trying on the first anniversary of Nitro to duplicate the angle that put the show on the map, where Lex Luger surprised everyone out of nowhere, strolling onto the set after wrestling on the previous night's WWF House show. This time it was supposed to be Davy Boy Smith. However, four days before Nitro, on the day his WWF contract was set to expire, Smith signed a five-year contract believed to be worth $250,000 per year downside guarantee with the WWF WCW's offer to Smith was said to be substantially higher and for fewer dates per year. And the original offer made to Smith months ago was a three-year deal at $400,000 per year. And the latest offer was said to be at least that figure, if not higher. And from here, Meltzer tells the story about how he had tried to give notice Uh, back during the months where he was main eventing against Shawn Michaels on pay-per-view and they're going back and forth about creative but you're about to say that didn't happen take it away look I
1: can't I can't speak to anything that did or did not happen between Davey boy and the WWF because I wasn't there sure that's 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 for Bruce Prichard I can tell you unequivocally is that right unequivocally yeah we'll go with it we'll go with either one take your fucking pick I can tell you for certain, let's go with that. I can tell you for certain, 100% certain, without any doubt in my mind, without any hesitation in my voice, Davy Boy Smith was never going to be a part of the NWO. There was never any discussion about recreating the Lex Lex Luger moment from a year prior on Nitro. That is complete bullshit, kind of in the same category as Mabel was the third man. It is fabricated bullshit reported as fact. The, there was never a syllable, not a consonant, not a vowel included in any conversation, in any language on this planet about Davy Boy Smith becoming a part of the NWO. And whoever whatever stooge, where Dave Meltzer gets the most of his most of his information, whatever stooge fed that to to dave knew that dave was a sucker and would print it and i'm sure it had there was some agenda behind it but dave being this being the stooge master that he is printed it i can tell you definitively never fucking happened
0: let me ask you though you're not you're not denying that you were negotiating with him or trying to bring
1: him in just that he was not going to be in the nwo right we we may have negotiated with him we may have we may have wanted to bring him in i wouldn't i wouldn't deny that and we eventually did bring him in so it's not that i'm saying davy boy smith you know wasn't right for wcw and we didn't want him i'm not saying that at all don't get me wrong i like davy boy davy boy smith had been in wcw previously there was there was a lot of support for davy but I'm just telling you that it is again, and this is the shit that gets me hot. You know, I don't mind Be look, if somebody – you know, I don't get hot when Dave Meltzer has or when you read about Dave Meltzer having an opinion about a match. Opinions are opinions. Everybody's welcome to have them. But when you report stooge material, pigeon shit, oh. as fact, then, then it gets me hot because it gives people bad information and people make judgments and it affects people's careers. It affects the business. It did. And, and I just think it's wrong. And this is a perfect example. This is Dave Meltzer reporting that just w- a week before July of 1996, when Hulk Hogan had already agreed to be the third man and I had sting in my back pocket as a plan B, just in case, Dave Meltzer reported that I was in a conversation with Scott Hall and Kevin Nash about maybe using Mabel as the third man. And why did he report that? Because Sean Waltman told him so. Here's the fucking problem with that. Sean Waltman didn't even work in WCW at the time. So how would Sean Waltman know that I was talking to Scott Hall and Kevin Nash, presumably, about anything? But Dave, Dave Meltzer reported it. And thank goodness Cassandra Fraser got you know, a check the other day. you know, for All of the Mabel was the third man t-shirts that we were able to sell just making fun of this stupidity. This is another one of these Dave Meltzer stupid moments, reporting that Davy Boy Smith was originally going to be a part of the NWO and that there was some kind of fakakta storyline, again, for my Jewish friends, the, the, another, some kind of screwed up storyline where we're going to recreate you know, the, the nitro moment using Davy Boy Smith is complete and utter bullshit. Well, listen. If you No, would. no, well, listen, there's no justifying that shit.
0: No, no, there is. Because here's the deal. You can't sit here and argue and say that if you would have signed Davey boy, you wouldn't have tried to rub WWF's nose in it. Of course you no, would.
1: I can't say that. Yes, I can say that. And I, it doesn't matter whether I wanted to rub their nose in it or not. There was, it doesn't change the fact that there was no NWO conversation and there was never a let's create the nitro moment conversation that I can say.
0: Yeah, I know you didn't like surprises, so you just wanted the one Lex Luger surprise, and never would there be a surprise signing again. Like, no, no,
1: I'd love it. I I would have loved a surprise, but it, it, it whether I would would have loved more surprises or not has nothing to do with the fact that this storyline was never a discussion.
0: I, I'm I'm with you on the NWO piece, but to say that you wouldn't have tried to have him debut as a surprise, of course you would have.
1: No, it doesn't matter if I would have or wouldn't have. The fact is it was never discussed.
0: Let's talk about Sean Waltman because that's the other thing he says was a last minute change of plans. He was supposed to be here and debuted, but now there's this, uh, legal battle that you guys were just in with Hall and Nash. And, and apparently the WWF is pumping the brakes here on that as well. Uh, is that accurate? Can we at least agree on that?
1: Yeah, there were issues, uh, with Paul, with, uh, Sean's release, no doubt about it and keep in mind we were and again this is another you know not that I need, feel like I need any support for my argument because I was there Dave Meltzer wasn't but we were at this point we were engaged in litigation with with WWE so For anybody to suggest that we were going to try to pull the same kind of stunt that we did with Lex Luger after we were deep into litigation or beginning in litigation with WWE doesn't really understand the dynamics of business at that time, or at least the legal side of it. And we were having problems with Sean Waltman at this point. His release was was clouded.
0: Uh, let's talk a little bit about what's next for the Giant. Fall Brawl, we would see the Giant get a win over Randy Savage seven minutes and forty seven seconds. Halloween Havoc, he would get a win over Jeff Jarrett by DQ thanks to outside interference from Ric Flair. That gets two stars. Uh, World War Three uh, has a really cool spot with the Giant eliminating motherfuckers with one hand. Um, he ultimately gets a win though on the undercard this time with Jeff Jarrett and then wins the 60-man battle royal, which guarantees him a world title shot against fellow NWO member Hulk Hogan. And somewhere in here, he found time to make a cameo in the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, Jingle All the Way. Um, pretty busy year, 1996, but we cap it off uh, with a match against Lex Luger in Nashville at Starcade, December 29th. Luger gets the win here. Two stars is the rating that it gets in the observer, but it is a big moment when the NWO has been running roughshod over WCW and the, the giant goes down to Lex Luger. What'd you think of, uh, the giants, 1996,
1: I think it was. All things considered, much better than 1995 for him. Yeah, he didn't die. So that's a no, step on the right he, direction. Yeah, well, we didn't throw him off a building. He didn't end up in a Detroit River. Um, but I think his association with the NWO was good for him. Uh, I think it took the pressure off of him as a character, being either a, a really strong heel or a really strong babyface, or believable heel or believable babyface. Joining the NWO gave him an identity as a character without having him in the ring selling to guys a third of his size, trying to get sympathy on him, um, or lying and cheating and stealing. He was guilty by association when he was in the NWO and it worked for him. Better than, any, better than what we were doing with him previously in the Dungeon of Doom, let's put it that way.
0: I do want to mention that um, the storyline continues the next night after starcade 96 of course he would come down a little bit for the piper hogan match at starcade but then the next night uh, he asked for a title shot since he won a title shot at world war 3 hogan sort of dismisses it and then later in the show as they're all taking turns beating on piper and really targeting his bad hip with a chair they want the giant to choke slam piper and he refuses so now once again this on again off again the crazy heel turn, baby face turn story that we've all seen in the WWE for the last 20 years. It's really getting into high gear here for WCW. He's a good guy again, as we finish up 1996. And of course we're going to start 1997 uh, with this Hogan giant promo and continue to build towards it. Um, one of the things that they're doing though, is uh, a ratings ploy for Robin hood. I'm sure you remember this. Chat me up about how this January 13th Nitro, where it looks like we're going to have Hulk Hogan challenge the giant for the world title, but really we're using it as a ratings ploy to push Robin hood. And we're going to show clips of the match during the Robin hood commercials. What the fuck? How does this come to be?
1: (laughs) We talked about this, I think in a previous episode, as we're about to head into the weeds. So put your weed your weed shoes on. Um, the challenge with wrestling has always been and still is to this day, even in even at USA or or or, or it will be when it goes over to Fox. Um, people tune in for wrestling, it's an incredibly loyal audience, generations old. Just people, you know, it's it's a tune-in property. When you've got two or three million wrestling fans, they're going to find you no matter where you are. And, and they're going to they're going to watch. That's the great thing about it. It's why, w, it's why WWE is successful as it is today. The challenge with it, though, is that once the show airs, the wrestling product airs, that audience goes somewhere else. They don't stick around. Typically, on a network, you'll watch shows in prime time, and they... They block shows in a way that hopefully they attract their audience at 8 o'clock, which is beginning prime time. And they hold on to them, you know, until 11 o'clock Eastern time, traditionally. And those shows all have the same kind of vibe. You know, an, an audience for one show will probably, at least the majority of them, stick around and watch another show on the same network. Wrestling has never enjoyed that. And that was one of the challenges we had with WCW at Turner. And and even when we were really hot at Nitro, you know, we were on TNT. Granted, Turner owned the network, which gave us a lot of unique advantages. It gave us a lot of unique disadvantages, but it gave us some very unique advantages as well. And one of the things that we tried to do was overcome that inherent challenge of losing our audience once our show Nitro was over. So, uh promotion over at tnt network came to us and said hey we're we're launching this new series you know robin hood how can we work together how can we try to drag as much of your audience eric that you have for nitro because we had a much bigger audience than nitro had the rest of the week with the exception of maybe nba playoffs um they wanted our help essentially in trying to figure out how we could you know hook and drag our audience and carry them over into robin Hood, hoping." that our audience would get into that show as well. My job (laughs) was to support my network and do anything I could to, to cooperate with TNT and Brad Siegel and try to leverage our show to help theirs. That's all it was. It wasn't our idea. We didn't do it because we thought it was the greatest thing in the world. We did it because we were part of the TNT network and our job was to help build the network any way that we could. And corporately, if I would have said, "No, nah, Brad, I don't want to do that," um, I would have had I would have had a hard time internally. And I liked Brad, and I wanted I wanted to prove you know. And I'll take responsibility for this. I went into it enthusiastically. Number one, because it was my job, and number two, because I wanted to prove or try to prove that we had value and that we could be used and we could find ways creatively to hook and jar dra- and drag our audience into other non wrestling related programming that would only make us more valuable to the network, and to the organization in general. So was I enthusiastic about it? Yes. Not because I thought it was a great idea, but I thought it was a great opportunity.
0: Well, it was an opportunity for you guys to do, um, An NWO pay-per-view, which I can't wait to cover. We'll probably do it in January. Sold out. Cedar Rapids, Iowa, January 25th, 1997. Your main event, Hulk Hogan and the Giant. They go to a no decision against a negative star and a half. Of all your Hogan-Giant matches, and Lord knows you guys did a bunch of them. Do any of them stand out to you as being more memorable than another?
1: Well, obviously, the Joe Louis arena is more memorable for many reasons, Um, mostly because I get my brains kicked out, you know, on a regular basis on social media as a result of it. But um, now, you know, for the reasons we've talked about, it's really hard with Paul. It's hard with a guy that big to build a story or lay out a match that's going to be the kind of match that's going to make you say, holy shit, was that amazing? It's just too difficult. And I, and again, I would say, you know, has there been a match in WWE that anybody says, wow, that was a phenomenal match with Big Show? He's had good matches. He's had – he's been a part of some really big things but is there, has there been one match in his entire career, WCW or WWE that stands out as one of those, Holy shit. That was a phenomenal match.
0: Super brawl 97 is a big moment because he gets the WCW tag team titles with his boy, Lex Luger, as they get a win over Kevin Nash and Scott hall. Of course you reversed the decision the next day, but for a day they were tag champs, three and a half star match uncensored would see team NWO which was Hall and Nash, Hulk Hogan, and the Macho Man, taking on Chris Benoit, Roddy Piper, Jeff Jarrett, and Steve McMichael for Team Piper. And then, of course, Team WCW was Lex Luger, Scott Steiner, and the Giant. Uh, We briefly talked about this one recently. Uh, Dennis Rodman's there. Fairly forgettable match, despite all the names in there. It only gets a star. Uh, As we keep rolling here, Spring Stampede. The winner is going to get a world title match in the future. This is the match where Harlem heat are competing as singles competitors with Lex Luger and the giant, the winner in this crazy match gets a title shot. And this is the time where we saw the famous promo from Booker T where maybe he called Hulk Hogan, something he shouldn't have. Uh, When did you first hear about this, uh, promo snafu by Booker T?
1: After it aired, um shortly after it aired, um yeah, this is a horrible time to be talking about this right now because everybody's so super sensitive and I understand that. You know, culture changes, society changes, hopefully we evolve to all be better people. Um but I'm just gonna tell the truth. It 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 was unfortunate. I got angry. For no other real reason, I'm not going to try to make myself out to be some kind of a social justice warrior at a time when I wasn't. But I was angry because of the lack of discipline. I wasn't angry. The the word and using the word in the context and because who said it, it just didn't – it was back then. You know, Today, my head would have spun off my shoulders because I would have anticipated the fallout. But back then, there really wasn't much. It was a different time now had, had, you know, a white guy said it. Yeah. It would have been a different situation, but it was what it was. There was not a lot of fallout. I was more disappointed because it was just sloppy and undisciplined than anything else.
0: Let's, uh, let's keep rolling here. Uh, the giant starts to flounder uh, a little bit here. It does feel like we're not exactly sure what to do with him, but he is involved in, a lot of the other top names take for instance the june 16th nitro they spend the entire show teasing hogan and rodman against luger and the giant uh let's fast forward to bash at the beach and we get that match exactly rodman hogan luger and the giant Uh, and this is uh as high profile as it gets when you've got dennis Rodman in there it only gets a star and a half uh, anything you can recall about why Luger and the giant were the right opponents for Dennis Rodman here?
1: No, I think it just fits storyline wise. There's probably not a whole lot more logic to it than that. It was more creative convenience than it was creative logic.
0: We do get a couple of, uh, fun wins over the great Muta here in July. And that gets us to road wild. We see the giant working with Randy Savage here at road wild 97. Of course, in hog wild 96, he was with Hogan. So he's still working with the top guys. Uh, fall brawl is, uh, fairly forgettable. We've got the giant working with Scott Norton and then at world war three, he's in the battle Royal, but Scott hall ultimately wins it. And we start to build towards. Um, the big show, which is star 97, which was supposed to be the giant versus Kevin Nash, but Nash doesn't show up tons of stories about this. I'm sure we'll cover it in more detail another time, but from the giants perspective, how disappointing is this after you've been building this battle of the giants and now Nash isn't here. How was Paul with this? And what do you recall?
1: I mean, I recall it happening. Cause I, I got the phone call that morning that Kevin was, I think this is the situation where Kevin ended up in the hospital. That's right. And, you know, you got to give some background on this just a little bit in order to, to do it any kind of justice. Uh, And I think Kevin has talked about this in the past. So I don't think I'm, you know, infringing on any personal information, but Kevin's father passed away at a very early age uh, of a heart attack. In fact, Kevin will probably tell you if if you ever have a conversation with him about it. He's probably at his family reunions. He's one of the oldest members in his family. His family has a history of of heart issues. And Kevin's always been, you know, Kevin's a big guy. Big guys and heart issues go hand in hand. So it's something that I even knew, you know, Kevin and I talked about that, you know, just in passing and, you know, getting to know each other personally over the years. uh, Much, you know, way previous to this incident. So it, it wasn't something that came from out of the blue in terms of Kevin having concerns about his heart. Um, Kevin. I'm careful how I say this. Kevin, st- Kevin. Kevin put himself into a situation the night before where he probably um, put some stress on himself. Um, might have had him. A- Glass of wine or two, too many, or whatever the situation was, but for whatever reason, he woke up the next morning and he legitimately thought he was having a heart issue. He went to the doctor, and this is where things got really crazy. He uh, and I'm trying to, and I'm only hesitating because I want to make sure I remember this right. When I say I, I want to make sure I say this right, it's because I want to try to give as accurate of information or recall as I can. Kevin went to the doctor, and they did a blood test on him. And because Kevin had done a really, really hard workout, and I know this myself, not from recent experience, but from way previous experience, that if you do an extremely heavy workout and and get into a blood test, if you break your muscles down well enough, for example, if you do a really heavy leg workout and you take a blood test the very next day or even that day, um, there will be indications in your blood work that there's been muscle damage and it shows up in your heart and your bloodstream, which could indicate a heart issue. So Kevin wasn't feeling well, number one, went to the doctor, had some blood work done that suggested he was having, could be having a heart issue. You following me so far? Yes. Okay. When once Kevin got that word, then he began to have some serious issues. I mean he, he he took it seriously. And at that point, he convinced himself he couldn't fly. So that was the situation, um, and I explained it to Paul as as best I could. I can't tell you what Paul was thinking. I, I, I can't, you know. You'd have to ask Paul. Uh, he and I didn't really. He was disappointed, I'm sure. But Paul, Paul, even at that point, was pretty much. Even though he was young. Um, he was mature in the sense that he didn't show a lot of emotion. If he was disappointed, he didn't sell it. If he was angry, he didn't sell it. I think Paul is by nature a sensitive of, of enough guy that he took the situation at face value. I don't My recall or recall isn't that he was like, oh my God, are you kidding me, Kevin's just He just doesn't want to work with me. He didn't get defensive or childish like that. Um, but he was disappointed, as anybody would be. But I think it was more of okay, let's figure out what we're going to do as a, as a as a professional should, as opposed to, you know, motherfucking the guy or accusing someone of you know, faking an injury or something like that to get out of a match. That wasn't the case at all with Paul. He was a pro.
0: Let's talk about um, you know what we're doing to sort of get the year started. We've got this angle with Kevin Nash that we're going to continue, and here the story is going to be that. They have to put up an appearance bond that the giant won't attack Kevin Nash before the pay-per-view. And we're of course going to build towards sold out where the match finally happens January 24th, 1998. Uh, we just passed the 20 year anniversary of that, believe it or not. And this is, uh, a scary scene. The giant is supposed to be jackknife power bombed by Kevin Nash, but it doesn't work. Now, they have done this spot before, I believe at Super Brawl the prior year. But in the time since, the Giants put on a little bit of weight and Kevin Nash can't handle it, drops him, and he lands on his neck and shoulders. He gets the pin here, but quite a scary scene. What do you remember about this uh, jackknife that didn't go as planned?
1: Yeah, you know, I, obviously, I remember it happening. There was a moment or two or three of concern for Paul um, and concern for, for Kevin. Cause that's, that's a lot of weight to trying to be thrown around. Um, but we knew pretty quickly everybody was going to be okay. And then it was just a matter of dealing with the fact that it didn't look as good as we wanted it to. I mean, there wasn't, you know, nobody, nobody slabbed their heads on the table and, you know, threw things across the room. Nobody got overly animated. It was an unfortunate situation. Obviously we were concerned with Paul and, and Kevin once it was, you know, it was obvious that they were both going to be okay. Then it was just like, eh, ouch. That was ugly.
0: They do a rematch at uncensored. The giant would get a win there by DQ over Kevin Nash, because there's going to be some shenanigans. Uh, everybody is interfering here. Brian Adams, Conan, Vincent. Uh, and they continue this even the next night on nitro from Panama city, uh, where Kevin Nash does a cannonball into the pool. Uh, that's how he manages to escape the giants clutches. Any fun uh, giant stories you can share with us about uh, any of the uh, Panama City shows?
1: (laughs) No, I didn't hang out with Paul. So any extracurricular activities that would have taken place between Paul and anybody else that would have been at any of those shows would have been off my radar, if that's what you're suggesting. Um, I didn't hang out with Paul much. You know, I mean, we, even though, you know, I was pretty tight with Hulk. Um, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't really hang out with Paul, you know, when I was down in Florida with Terry, um, Paul wasn't around, you know, we, we were friendly, I guess, but I, I, we weren't friends. So when ever we were on the road, Paul was just, you know, occasionally he would, he would come to the bar if we were all at the bar after the show and there was a group of us there, Paul would join us for a while, but Paul was never. He was never a partier th- that I could recall. Now i I, I know for a fact that he was, but not when I was around. Spring
0: stampede. We see Nash and Hogan teaming up to take on Roddy Piper and the giant. Uh, there's a baseball bat on a pole here and Vince Russo's nowhere to be found. So This wasn't his fault. Uh, it gets a star and a half. Uh, and then we start to build towards Slambury where we've got Sting and the Giant. Sting at this point is not exactly sure who to trust and is the reluctant tag team partner of the Giant as they take on Kevin Nash and Scott Hall. And we've covered this one in the archives. It gets a dud rating because Scott Hall turns on Kevin Nash and this is a big deal uh because it looks like the first time that we see Kevin Nash and Scott Hall separate since they've been in WCW. As a result, Sting and the Giant are the accidental tag team champions, and nobody really saw that coming. What did you think of this Sting-Giant storyline and the decision to make them the champions?
1: storyline was okay. And again, it was we were trying, again, in, in the context of what was going on back at that time, we were trying to create the brand separation if you will between wcw and nwo so a a lot of the shenanigans as you put it or the creative um some of it good some of it bad some of it in the middle a lot of it in the middle um was all really most of it was designed to help set up that future brand split between wcw and nwo And, and in that context you know it was it worked you know it functioned it wasn't great it wasn't stellar But we did, as you pointed out, we did split up Kevin and Scott. We did create friction there. Um, It is now WCW kind of getting their legs back underneath them at least a little bit. Um, So I guess, you know, replaying it back in my head as you lay it out to me, it kind of worked for what it was supposed to achieve.
0: That takes us to Great American Bash, which is June 14th in Baltimore. Sting and the Giant aren't exactly getting along. So they're going to wrestle each other here to decide who is the tag team champions. That's right. One guy is going to have two, two belts and that can we,
1: can we, can we just skip this part, please?
0: Yeah, we probably should, but we're not gonna (laughs) sting gets the win over the giant. So now sting is the tag team champions. Hopefully that's not confusing. Uh, the giant around this same time is smoking cigarettes on his way to the ring. What's up with the the giant smoking cigarettes on camera? It feels really out of place and pretty random.
1: Well, it wasn't random because Paul, back then, I don't know what he's doing now, but back then Paul smoked like a chimney. And that was as much my idea. I'm pretty sure that was almost exclusively my idea. I don't think that was part of a group discussion. Um, I was trying to get Paul over. I was trying to figure out what to do with Paul to give him such a unique character, other than being seven foot four and four hundred pounds or whatever he was. Um, that just that kind of big, kind of. In fact, they used to joke about it. You know, the big stinky giant. I think it was Hogan's nickname for him uh, in in the background at that time. But just to kind of create this character that was so strong, so powerful, but didn't really care and was able to beat people so easily that he didn't really have to work at it and was almost loathsome as a result, you know, that he would come to the ring and do something as just arrogant and nasty and 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 out of the ordinary as come to the ring smoking a cigarette and still be able to crush people. That was my attempt to make him – dislikable, good or bad, uh, clearly bad. Um, I don't think it's up for a vote. I'll, I'll vote for bad, even though it was my idea. But that was the reasoning behind it. Nobody else was really doing it. I know you're going to throw the Sandman in my face. I wasn't watching this shit back then. I have no idea. <laughs> I, 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 you know, you've done it before. I knew it was coming. Sorry to take your punch out, uh, out of your arsenal. But I wasn't watching that shit back then. I, I couldn't get it on Channel 92 at 3 o'clock in the morning. Uh, it didn't exist in, in my world, but it was just taking Paul's real personality because he was smoking backstage all the time. It's like, okay, let's just turn up the volume on this and see if we can make him almost as a big, stinky, despicable giant. That was the goal.
0: Well, he's so stinky that, uh, sting decides to have Kevin Nash be his tag team partner now that he can just randomly decide who was his tag team champion partner. And now you guys are going to try to figure out what to do with Kevin Green. Uh, he is going to be working with the giant, uh, any memories of Kevin Green and the giant working together? I don't know when we'll talk about Kevin Green again here on the show.
1: Uh, I don't, you know, I wish I did. There was nothing really outstanding enough about it for it to, you know, flash back in my memory and compel me to discuss it.
0: I think you have told this story before, but it feels like a good place to tell it again. There was an incident in June. I believe it was June where there was a fan in a bar near Nassau Coliseum, really heckling Kevin Nash who dismisses it. So the fan turns the attention to the giant and Paul white punches him one time for his trouble and then makes an exodus. Do you remember the giant? putting a fan in his place in a bar in New York.
1: No, if it's the same, you know, I was, I was involved in when I say involved, I was on the scene. I mean, I I was, I was there on one occasion. If this is the same occasion, if there was more then I don't want to confuse them, but on the occasion, I think this is the one that you're talking about. There was about six of us or eight of us, not many. I mean, we had just gotten to the hotel You know, the show was over, and it was always the case. You know, you work all day. You're pounding coffee all day long uh, from about noon till, you know, 11 o'clock at night. And your adrenaline's up. You get to the hotel. You've got about an hour, hour and a half, sometimes two hours by the time you get to the hotel before the bars closed at the hotel. And you'd get together, and everybody would have a couple beers, talk about the show, whatever. Um, On this particular night that I recall, if this is the night that we're talking about— um, there was maybe six or eight of us at the bar. It was a very low key situation. It wasn't like there was, you know, hundred fans there and, you know, 40 of the wrestlers. It wasn't that it was a much smaller group. And there were fans there. There's no question about it, but it wasn't a big blowout party after nitro type of thing. And I, I don't remember the situation with Kevin because I wasn't involved in it. I was sitting away from it. I didn't really see that. Um, I did see out of the corner of my eye the fan starting to pursue Paul and push Paul's buttons and I, and I I remember thinking at first is this a fucking joke is this must be a friend of Paul's you know that's just having fun at Paul's expense because nobody in their right mind would be doing and the guy was you know he was a sizable dude he wasn't like my size he was a he was a stout dude but it still looked ridiculous you know I'm thinking this can't be real And then a short time later, um, Paul came back to the bar and um, told us all what happened. And I kind of saw it out of the corner of my eye. It was at a distance. I didn't completely see it because there were people around it that obscured some of the action. All I recall is seeing Paul's fist move what looked like about three inches. It was a short – it was like a Bruce Lee fucking one-inch punch is what it looked like. Um, And it was over. And it was really not a big deal. Now Paul was upset when he got back, and I can recall—now not me so much, but I can recall everybody else kind of calming him down, let him know everything was going to be okay. But it was, yeah, it was short and it was short and sweet and fast and really stupid. I mean, I just can't imagine anybody picking a fight with a guy like Paul White.
0: I guess I glossed over here, but, uh, the giant does wind up beating Kevin green at the bash of the beach pay-per-view when they work a singles match. And then the next night on nitro, Scott hall and the giant, win the tag titles from Nash and sting, uh, and this is around the time when we start to build for road wild, where we've got bill Goldberg working a non-man battle royal with eight members of the NWO. Um, it is what it is. At this point, I think is when you probably start to realize that the giant is probably going to be looking to leave. Um, can you talk to us? It makes the observer in October, but you probably have an idea in August. What can you tell us about when you knew he's going to want to negotiate? He wants more money. He's not happy with the creative, whatever the situation is, that's going to lead to him ultimately jumping ship, so to speak. When do you first know this is where that's headed?
1: Well, you know, I didn't write it down on my personal diaries. I don't remember the date, but it was sometime. It was in the summer, you know, maybe June, July is when I first started getting wind of it. I think Terry mentioned it to me. Hulk mentioned it to me. Uh, Paul was generally pretty, I don't know, he was negative pouty that's the best way to, that, that's the you know that, that's the best way to phrase it paul was not a bitcher he wouldn't come and complain he wouldn't try to corner me in my office or in a locker room or you know anywhere on a plane and you know he, he wasn't that way he wasn't pushy um but you, he was mopey you know you could see it when he got to the building if he wasn't happy it was really obvious and not in a mean aggressive way or you know he wasn't putting on a show he just He wore his emotions on his sleeves, on his sleeve. A lot lot of guys do that. But with Paul, it was really obvious. And he was just unmotivated is another, you know, characteristic, I think, or or, or thing that I noticed about him. Uh, There's just he you could just tell he didn't want to be there. And again, I really like Paul as a person. And we've we're all different people now than we were 20 years ago. And I'm sure Paul is as well. But Paul was still very young at that time um he wasn't where he wanted to be i was having a hard time and, and tr- you know we tried the andre the giant gimmick and we tried hulk hogan's ideas i tried some of my own ideas we tried some of everybody's ideas Kevin Sullivan, Randy Savage, everybody had an idea of what Kevin Nash. Everybody had ideas of how to get Paul over. But the truth was Paul wasn't really getting over to the level that he, that, his, that, that he expected himself to get over. He wanted to be the next Hulk Hogan. He wanted to be the next Andre the Giant. And he wasn't getting there. He was frustrated with that. Frankly, so was I. And so it was, you know, not that everybody else was frustrated because they didn't have as much stake in it, obviously, as WCW did or as Paul did personally. But I think we were all kind of of the mind. It's like, well, Paul, this is an amazing guy. He's seven foot, you know, four inches tall. He's four or five hundred pounds. He's an amazing athlete. He can do amazing things in the ring when called upon. But we just can't figure out how to really get him over to that Hulk Hogan, Ric Flair, Andre the Giant level. So he was frustrated. He was disappointed. He was depressed about it, um, and we were frustrated as well. So yeah, it, it became apparent he wasn't happy. Uh, I think his manager probably started talking to Nick Lambros, you know, around the time that his contract was coming up. And you know, I I told Nick, look, you know, if we can keep him, we'll keep him. And if we can keep him and you know give him a raise, you know, I, I can't remember what Paul was making at that time. I'm I don't want to say because I don't know if it's been published before, but it, it he certainly wasn't in the Sting category um, or, or the Kevin Nash category. Uh, but I told Nick if we can keep him, if we can negotiate a deal that's fair, great. If we can't, then we can't and let him go. And, I, you know, the one thing I do remember and, you know, people, you know, I talk about Hulk all the time and how close we are and we are. We're probably closer now than we've ever been. And there were times when we were working together in WCW that we didn't have the same perspective on things. And we did have arguments. And there were times we didn't see eye to eye. Um, but I remember you know, Hulk saying to me, don't let this cat go. If he goes to, to WWE, you know, Vince is going to he'll, he'll make him the next Andre the Giant. He'll make him the next Hulk Hogan. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't think so. Because he's going to have the same problem that we've had. We've tried all those ideas. and Now, keep in mind, this is 1998, right? It's not like we were lacking in confidence. We probably were overconfident, if anything. Um, we were rocking and rolling. We had completely turned the business upside down. We had defeated WWE. We had proven that we had a better creative approach to the product than WWF did at the time. So it wasn't like, oh my God, if he's going to go to WWE, Vince is going to, you know, sprinkle the magic McMahon dust on him, and all of a sudden he's going to become the next Andre the Giant. I didn't believe it. And when Paul, you know, came to me and said, "Here's the offer I got," I I, I encouraged him to take it because there's no way I. Number one, I couldn't have matched it. First of all, there's just no way, despite the ATM Eric you know, um, knock that I got, there was no way I could match the offer that Vince McMahon gave to, to Paul White, number one. And number two, even if I could have, I wouldn't have because had I, made that, had I matched or beat that offer, um, I would have been stuck with the same challenge that I, that I had for the last two or three years leading up to that.
0: Uh, Meltzer would write in the October 5th edition of the observer. This is from 1998 reminds you that, um, he's been talking very loudly to make sure that Bischoff knows that he's got a deal on the table from the WWF. He misses a house show on September 23rd, complaining of a broken rib and a lot of people start to get the rumor mill going that he's definitely leaving and supposedly has a million dollar per year offer. And there's lots of speculation that maybe this is the giant that Vince has been after when he signed guys like giant Silva and Kurgan. Um, and he's probably not making a fraction of that here with WCW. He had been very vocal saying that, you know, he was making, Less than he felt like he should have based on his push, and I know that he started you know with a with a top spot, but do you feel like his complaint was valid that you know he's the top guy he's the champ, he's working the top of the cards and really making a fraction of what everybody else who has a similar spot is making?
1: I'm sure from his, yeah, it it was fair from his point of view or his agent's point of view. It wasn't fair from a business point of view. I could put Conrad Thompson, if I was Vince McMahon, I could put Conrad Thompson in the main event at the next WrestleMania. It doesn't mean that you're worth as much as the guy if you're working with a John Cena or you're working with an AJ Styles or you're working with whoever. It doesn't mean just because you're in the spot, you're worth the money. I mean, it all depends on how you want to look at things. The fact that we put Paul... I put Paul, we put Paul, Hulk put Paul, um, Kevin Sullivan put Paul in some of those top spots trying to get him the rub or try to get him associated with top guys in order to try to make him more valuable doesn't necessarily mean he was. It just meant that we tried. And I think that's the difference, you know, when you're negotiating or when you're a talent and when you're you're actually running the company, it's easy, you know, to, to – come up with analogies or parallels that help you make your cause or make your case. I, you know, and I can see if I was Paul's agent, I said, well, wait a minute. You know, he's, he's in there with Scott Hall and Kevin Nash and these guys are making X and he's making Y, why isn't he worth as much as them? Well, the answer is because he's not because Paul White didn't turn the business around. Paul White's character didn't create, help us create the NWO, which really did turn the business around. And arguably those guys were worth more as a result of it. Um, Paul wasn't, Paul was still a guy that we had a hard time getting over to that top spot. So that was, he, the, that, that was the, difference of perspectives at the time.
0: Do you remember him? No showing, uh, events no. to try to get a rise out of you.
1: No. And see, again, that's, that's a, that's a dirt sheet kind of, you know, framework there. Did he, did he miss a shot because he had a broken rib? Maybe did, do I think if he missed a shot, he was trying to get a rise out of me. Why would he do that? Because no showing event is going to get a rise out of me, but not the kind that's going to be beneficial, not the kind that's going to work in your benefit in any way, shape or form. It's not going to create a desire on my part to make me want to work a little harder to try to do business with you. It's going to make me more convinced I was right the first time around. This guy's just not really worth it. And I mean, I'm saying that about anybody, whether it was Paul White or anybody else to suggest that somebody's going to no show an event just to get a rise out of me or to increase their leverage in a negotiation is clearly coming from somebody that doesn't fucking know me for a minute. Because in any situation, whether I'm struggling to survive or whether I'm sitting on top of the world, that kind of tactic will go. And I'm talking about since the time I was a kid, that type of that falls into the category of a threat. I've never dealt well with threats. And when I say never dealt well, I've never dealt intelligently with them and I've never dealt emotionally responsibly to them all the time. But one thing that's consistent is they've never worked for me ever. So for, for Dave or anybody else to suggest that anything other than that is true, just again, reflects what he doesn't know, not what he does.
0: Meltzer wrote in the November 23rd observer that the giant is on a $400,000 a year contract here with WCW and it's set to expire on February 9th, 1999. And he's suggesting that there are reports that WCW is going to offer him $2.9 million spread over three years in order to keep him. And of course, everybody else is saying he's got a million dollar offer from the WWF, but the WWF is denying that because technically that would be tampering um, but they do expect it to be high six figures, but not higher than what, say, The Undertaker or Austin or The Rock are signed to, which is believed to be a half a million dollar guarantee. Do you know, I mean, can you confirm the the neighborhood of $400,000 a year as being?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was published before, so I don't mind commenting on things that have been published before. Um, yeah, it was $400,000 a year. That's what he was making.
0: What about the the rumor and innuendo that it was going to be a $2.9 million offer across three years? Do you recall that? No. Okay. Do you remember where you got in your negotiations at any point with him? Like what number you got close to?
1: We didn't really. I mean, it was pretty obvious that Paul was going to go. I heard early on, you know, in the number that I heard, whether it was Paul making it up to try to get my attention or whether it was true. Uh, And I actually heard it from a third party, who I'm not going to name, that did have good insight into what was going on at WWF at the time. The number that I got back from the third party, I actually heard the number from the third party before I heard it from Paul, was a million dollars a year for 10 years guaranteed. And at that point, I would have driven him to the airport.
0: Why won't you tell us who it was?
1: No, I'm not going to do it. Because that person probably wouldn't want... To be involved in this conversation, and it doesn't change anything. In
0: 1996, because this is all public information now from a lawsuit, uh, Paul made two hundred thirty-eight thousand four hundred one dollars. In '97, he made three hundred twenty-five thousand eight hundred thirty-three. In 1998, it was his best year in WCW. He did 447136 one thirty-six. And for the very brief time he was with the company in 1999, he did 136494 four ninety-four. So he's going to leave for greener pastures, uh, and he's going to leave as a 27 year old. Um, he's also had a lot of television opportunities. He's been on Jay Leno. Uh, he was on, in the movie Waterboy. he was on the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. So he probably does feel like, uh, he's got plenty of opportunity here. I guess we should mention he is in the battle Royal world war three. Kevin Nash wins there, but before he can get out of town, And get over to the WWF. He has a little bit of legal trouble. He finds himself arrested on December 3rd. Uh, and there is an incident where a woman at, uh, the Hilton is pressing charges where all the boys are staying in Memphis there. Um, what do you remember about right here? When it seems like he's on his way out, there's a a legal issue.
1: I mean, I was aware of it. Clearly, so was everybody. It didn't really have anything to do with me. Um, I don't think WCW was at any risk at that point uh, legally, weren't involved in it. Uh, I never talked to anybody about it. Nobody ever called me and asked me any questions about it legally. No police officers, nobody was doing any reports or anything like that. Um, so for me, it was just another incident, uh, an unfortunate one, but I didn't, it's kind of off my watch.
0: It's, it's pretty nuts that this is in the observer, but he was accused by a hotel clerk of saying, do you know why they call me the giant? And she says, because you're so tall. And he responds with another reason and you can use your imagination there. And allegedly when the police are called, they send 24 officers to the mid South Coliseum to pick him up because they just heard he was a giant, um, Lots of the boys are giving him moral support here. What a silly story. Um, 24 police officers. Uh, it's also written in the observer that DDP is sort of being the flag bearer for WCW trying to convince him to not leave and to stay. Do you recall DDP being a WCW advocate for the giant? Uh, what were, what was the consensus amongst the boys at this point about should he stay or should
1: he go when it came to the giant and WCW? I don't know. You know, I'm not. I, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't hang out with him. I wasn't in a locker room with the boys, as you say. Right. Uh, the roster, the rest of the talent, whatever you want to call it. Um, I, I was. I was running the company, so there was a lot of conversations between the talent um, that never got, you know, to me. So I don't know. I, I don't know what the consensus of the boys were with regard to Paul leaving. As far as DDP is concerned, you know, I think Paul, DDP really liked Paul. I mean, they were friends. And and Paige was, you know, he, he was loyal to me. He was loyal to the company. The company was doing quite well at that time. WWE was doing quite unwell at that time. So I think, you know, it's conceivable that Paige would have tried to talk to Paul and try to get a better deal for him at WCW and, 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 and keep Paul from going to WWE. But I, you know, I wasn't a part of it. It's not like Paige and I, he didn't call me up, you know, every night and say, okay, here's what I said to Paul and here's what Paul said to me. And, you know, we didn't communicate about it, but it's conceivable.
0: Let's go ahead and tell you his last shot that we see on TV, at least his last big moment with WCW is Starcade, December 27th in Washington, 1998. He's taking on DDP and, uh, DDP beats him clean. Uh, they go 12 minutes and 45 seconds. Meltzer would write that. It looks like, uh, the giant has put on like 30 pounds since they saw him. He only gives the match three quarters of a star. This is pretty old school though. I mean, if you see him leave, you know, he's leaving, have him put a guy over on the way out. He works a handful of house shows in early January, putting over Goldberg and DDP. Kevin Nash gets a win over him when he uses a wrench, uh, that was used to put together the ring on January 11th. And that's technically the last time we see the giant in WCW, uh, he's going to show up in the WWF at the St. Valentine's day massacre pay-per-view in early February. And I guess we should mention, since I brought it up, the woman who accused the giant of, uh, well, you know, um, the police dropped all charges related to that. So nothing ever came of it legally, although she did file a lawsuit against WCW for half a million dollars. But, uh, that was pretty common for WCW in 1998 and
1: 99. And you know what? You didn't, you didn't, you didn't ask me what I thought about that. And I, I want, because we're closing this up and out of respect for Paul, when I heard that it, I mean, I don't want to suggest that I know Paul so well that, that I would be adamant and swear on a stack of Bibles that it would never happen because I, I wasn't friends with him. I said that before I didn't hang out with him, but everything that I knew of Paul, when I heard that, I went, that's bullshit. Right. I mean, Paul's capable of doing some stupid shit. I could see him being rude. First of all, I can't even see him being rude to somebody. I, I He's just not that guy. Paul White is the most shy, gentle. um, He just wants to be kind of left alone. He is not that guy. I've never saw anything in him in any situation that would indicate to me that even on a bad fucking night with too much tequila, he'd pull a bonehead move like that. And I didn't believe it when I heard it. And I, and I don't believe it happened to this day. It sounded to me then, as it sounds to me now, when you read it back to me, that it was just looking for a buck. I'm just telling you, you telling you the truth. It happens, you know, it's unfortunate, but I just, I just don't believe it. I didn't believe it then. and I don't believe it now. Well, the
0: charges were dropped. So let's put a bow on this episode here, Eric. How would you rate Paul Wyatt's WCW career? I mean, he starts out hot with Hulk Hogan, and then it sort of fizzles at the end, but he had some big highlights along the way and it happened right in the middle of the Monday night war. When you look back on Paul's run, how would you sort of categorize it?
1: Uh, I think from Paul's point of view, it was extremely successful because it led him to a phenomenal career in the WWE. I mean, if you take your emotion out of it and you take your, oh, if this guy would have done this, I would have gotten over faster. You take all that. Gaga out of the equation and you just kind of step back from a macro perspective if, if you're Paul White's business manager and you look back at the scenario you think wait a minute you you put yourself on national television they gave you an opportunity to work with some of the biggest names in the industry at that time you were part of the rise in, in professional wrestling that's probably never going to see another era like that ever again and you were a part of that and by the way it led you to a phenomenal career at the WWE so So how can anybody look at his time in WCW is anything but successful, not successful in the sense that he became the next Ric Flair or the next Stone Cold Steve Austin or Hulk Hogan or Andre the Giant, but successful in the sense that it got him to a very, very successful career. And I'm proud to have been a part of that. I wish it would have. You know, I wish I would have been able to and Hulk would have been able to and Randy and Kevin Sullivan and everybody else that tried to make him the next Hulk Hogan. I wish it would have worked for him and for us. Um, but it didn't. But it doesn't mean that I'm not proud to have said we got a chance to work with him. And to some degree, we helped shape his career and his future. And and it ended up being a very bright one. So I'm, I don't know what I, I guess I'm a glass half full kind of guy when it comes to Paul White.
0: Well, let's see if you're half full next week. When we talk about the man they call Vader in WCW, he had an interesting end to his WCW run, and we're going to examine all the rumor and innuendo. And we're going to do it next week, right here on 83 weeks. He is at E Bischoff on Twitter and I am at Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. And we are out of time. We'll see you next week, right here on 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff.